Hi, everybody. Today's episode of Grief is My Side Hustle is really such an extraordinarily special one. I get to sit down with Luke Ressert, who wrote a beautiful book honoring his father and his own grief process called Look for Me There, Grieving My Father, Finding Myself. Luke immediately takes us into the story of the death of his beloved father, Tim Ressert, known to many as the anchor of Meet the Press. I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time of his father's death, and it was such an extraordinary thing to read the book and remember my own experiences and my own feelings about these moments. This conversation is so warm. Luke is so generous, and it's just such a wonderful thing to be able to step into this relationship, especially for those of us who've lost dads and are thinking about them on Father's Day. If you want more from Luke, go to the show notes. I link his current work there and how you can get a hold of the book. We have copies of it. But he's also going to be at the Sixth and I Synagogue in Washington, D.C. on June 27th, 7 p.m. He's going to be interviewed with or sit down with Andrea Mitchell, and I'll be there. So send us a DM if you're planning on being there. Maybe we can link up, but I just can't get enough of him, and I really want to see him in person and keep supporting his work. So thanks so much for being here for this episode. Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am your host, Megan Bearden Jarvis, and I am unbelievably delighted to have, I'm going to, I'm going to say kind of hounded my next guest to be on the podcast. He was so unbelievably generous because he is very, very busy promoting his gorgeous new book. Luke Ressert, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, it's a very selfish interview for me today because I was really deeply interested in your book and then as touched by it as I expected I was going to be when I heard about it, but very differently than I maybe expected. I know you hear this story all the time, but I was living in D.C. I remember the day your dad died. I remember my reaction. I remember everybody around me's reaction. It was really special to be able to read that in the very beginning of the book. I want to not assume that everybody knows exactly who you are and your story. So before we get in deep into what your book is about, can you just tell folks sort of how you come into the world of grief and loss? Sure. On June 13th, 2008, my father, Tim Russert, was 58 years old and died of a heart attack, a type known as the Widowmaker. And he died at the pinnacle of his career. He was moderator of Meet the Press on NBC News, the number one Sunday morning public affairs talk show in the country, and really a beloved figure who had manned that position for over 17 years and had developed a really authentic relationship with his audience and his viewers and was seen as a, a trusted newsman and who was affable and relatable. And I think a lot of those values came from his upbringing as the son of a garbage man in South Buffalo, New York. And he died completely unexpectedly. He had always, I think, battled, you know, weight and things like that, but it seemed to be under control. He'd passed a stress test two months ahead of his death. So it was very much a body blow for me. Some have said it was a body blow for the country, but just in terms of my own relationship, it was, you know, losing my best friend, losing my dad. And it happened so quickly and you change. One of the things a friend said to me, which I agree with, is that you feel like you age decades and days. 
And I think that's very true. Yeah. Yeah. The very beginning part of this, of your book is sort of the, those hours and days, which I have to tell you, like I was, I was weeping by the fourth page. And I think as someone who's also lost parents, you do such a beautiful job of writing about the juxtaposition of being a person in the moment and also being a person for the other people in the moment. And your dad was someone who was loved by so many people. So the juxtaposition of being there for other people and also experiencing your own emotions. One of the things that you write about is something that I think grievers talk about, which is we either are able to function or we can't function at all. Can you talk a little bit about what those hours and days were that led up to maybe even the decision to give the eulogy, which I know was a big kind of turning point decision for you? Sure. I think the way you just stated it is spot on. There's some people that shy away from everything, curl up into a ball, close the door, and just remove themselves from the situation. And I get that. I understand that. I think there's nothing wrong with that. There's also folks that sort of say, okay, this is something that I need to handle for my family, for myself, because the person who's now gone would have wanted it that way. And I'm going to do my best to honor them. I was the latter. And I think as soon as my father passed away, there was about a, a, a day where my mom and I, we were in Italy. So we were removed from everything. And that was sort of a blessing because we were able to center ourselves, make a commitment to each other that we would do this process together as a team born out of love and compassion and, and, and just, just straightforward honesty and support. But what I came to realize as soon as I got back to the United States was there is a huge outpouring of grief for my father. And also just in my immediate family, there was a sense of the rock was gone. So everything was just so out of whack and everything was falling away. And there is this idea of not only the loss of an individual, but sort of just the loss of the world we knew. Yeah. And that was just in the immediate within my own family. So I made a decision as the firstborn son of an only child, but also as a sort of, you know, ringleader amongst my cousins yeah. and sort of this kid who grew up with a lot of pressure on his shoulders because I grew up, you know, the, the best means of my family. My grandmother was a garbage man. So there's always this idea of you must do the best you can because you're not only doing it for yourself, you're doing it for your cousins, your grandpa and everybody else. Took on this idea of, okay, I'm going to honor my father and rise to the occasion the best that I can. And there's an element of staying strong. You know, people say, stay strong, keep the faith. And that exists. I think for me, there was just sort of comfort in that. And it allowed me not to have to think about the actual loss. Yeah. The more was this sort of thought about the logistics, sort yeah. of how does this funeral to operate? Do. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, death is very much a business, which you realize right off the right. gate. What casket are you going to pick out? How many flowers are you going to have? Where is he going to be buried? You know, one of the things, and I haven't shared this before, but it's, I now look back at this with, I, I laugh about this, was my father was an organ donor. And one of the first conversations I had after he died was with this young guy, poor guy, who was at the DC office of organ donation or whatever that is called. And he's asking me these questions. It was like, you know, did, was your dad a habitual abuser of drugs? Is there anything in his organs that couldn't be problematic? Oh my God. I started laughing. I was like, yeah, no. I no, yeah. no. 
but you sort of those are the sort of things it's that surreal. you fall into, yeah. right? That are sort of surreal. And I sort of saw that. I was like, okay, there's a lot of things to occupy my time, and I'll and I'll pay attention to this. And then the eulogy was a wonderful moment for me to honor the man, center myself, and also be reflective, but be reflective in a sense of there was a deadline. So I couldn't just sort of sit there and, you know, tell stories all day about how much I miss my dad. It was sort of be coherent, put this into something yeah. that could be understood. Well, that was a very valuable exercise. But I think for what I did was, you know, I got a fortune cookie soon after he passed away and said the greatest cure for misery is hard work. And I just sort of threw myself into work because work was a distraction. And even though he was omnipresent in the work I did, I followed in his footsteps in media. That was simultaneously comforting because he was yeah. still around, but it was also gave, gave me something else to do. What I never did in those immediate years was actually sit in the feelings of dad is gone. What does that mean for me? And not think about it in a, in a, all right, this is what I'm going to do tomorrow sense more of what does that mean for me as a human being? What yeah. does that mean for me as a son? What does that mean for me? Just sort of somebody who is going to have a very different life now. Yeah. And the reason why is because you don't want to confront that. Yeah. That's the hardest thing in the world to confront. I argue, you know, interestingly enough, that it, that the, the literal death, because especially in the Catholic tradition, there's a thousand year script. So yeah. everything's sort of planned out. Once the body is in the ground, it, it's the first few weeks are hard, but the hardest part is two years later, three years That's later. Right. You wake up That's in the middle right. of the night and you go, why am I feeling this way? And you don't know because people have moved on, time has moved on and you're sort of left to try and put the pieces back together the best you can. And there's no format for it because right. some people respond to things or some people have their own way. And for me, I kept everything inside and I sort of figured it out. Well, I know what I'm doing or everyone's so impressed by what I said at the eulogy and impressed by my being tough that I have to sort of stay this way because I can't, you know, be more open or, or, or show a real emotion because that's not what people need from me. They need, you know, someone to be sturdy and it's a hard role to play. You said so many things in there, but, but one that I really locked onto is the idea of like not knowing. Right. I mean, just what you just said is so educational and helpful. Just saying out loud that it's two to three years on, that it really gets dicey. You know, in my field, we have folks that are out there who are who are doing qualitative data research saying, hey, do you need more support in your grief and loss? And depending on what point they get you at, the answer is either going to be no, I'm fine or yes, maybe. But when people like I was very overwhelmed in the early moments of my mother's death, that's almost like a relief to people like, oh, something tragic happened and she fell apart. The math makes sense. What I most often see in my office is people who come in and they say, I haven't really slept very well in like six years. I don't and I don't know why. Yeah. Or I have, I have inflammation or digestive tract issues or a crisis in faith, or my marriage hasn't been great. And they actually don't have the myth of going back and saying things shifted for me fundamentally in terms of like how I feel like a human on the earth because this center 
to my life is no longer there. And we, what do we get? We get three weeks off of work. We get, you know, if we're lucky, we get, you know, we get some casseroles and we get really good, beautiful cards and maybe some pictures. And all of that comes within the first three months. And what I, what I was thinking a lot about when I was reading your book was the stage of life you were in, because I'm, I moved down to DC to Capitol Hill right after my first graduate program. So I was like 23. And I really felt like I was trying to invent myself. I was trying to understand who was I going to be in the world. And what I was when I came down at 23 is not who I was when I landed out the other side at 30. And the stage of life that you experience your loss is also a really big deal because you have some beautiful travel that you do with your mom and you give us some insights into who she was. And she is also an extraordinary woman in her own right. And and it was fascinating to read about her experiences as a journalist and someone who had traveled all over the world. But I think about for, for a young person, part of what we're doing is we're pushing away our parents a little bit and trying to figure out who are we going to be. And it's very different to try to figure out who you're going to be when your dad has tragically died. And what I heard you saying about your mom, which is that she could be a little bit harder on you and that your dad was a little bit softer. My parents are reversed. <laughs> But you had your mom then to be with, to sort of, you know, identify with. And what you're doing is following in your dad's footsteps as a job. And I think, do I have the timeline right that it's eight years later that you step away from journalism? Is that right? Yeah. I think you're touching on, on two things there that are important. I think the first is there is a sort of arrested development upon the time when you experience a, a trauma like that. And for me, what I came to realize when I write about is part of me didn't want to move on from that time because the idea is if you do move on from that time, then that person really is gone, that they really moved on and that you've moved on. And that 22-year-old Luke is part of you sort of lives in that space forever because it's the space where dad's still alive. So you try to hold on to it. And ways that you act and perhaps that you don't mature as quickly as you should, or you choose not to mature, or you choose to do things that sort of keep you in a space that is as close to that as possible, because that is a place of comfort, right? I think the other part, as you mentioned, is what the relationship is with the remaining parent. Yeah. And that's going to shift no matter what, even if you have a good relationship, you have a bad relationship, mediocre, whatever it is, there is a shift. Because now it's just you and them. I'm an only child. Obviously, people have siblings. But they take on responsibilities that they never had before, whether that's for them to learn how to live alone, whether that's for them to learn how to be the only outlet for you, this capability, whether it's now taking on just the process of paying bills or being aware of how things work within a home, et cetera. And... I think for me, with my own mother, there was an element of she wanted me to have a quick maturation process because I was, quote unquote, you know, now the man of the house or the man of the family. But there was also this element of 
I want to do enough for you where you're not forced into that so quickly. So it's a weird dynamic totally. because the there's some, there's some days where it's please take on more responsibility. Your dad's not around anymore. You need to do this. Yeah. And then other days where it's just, oh, that must have been so difficult for you. Like, no, I'll take care of it. Don't worry. And it's hard to navigate that dynamic because you want to be thought of as this respected peer, but then there's an element of, no, you're still the little kid. And that respected peer status, which ordinarily comes after you've been married or have children, or you become more of a professional and you turn in your late thirties or forties, where you truly are the adult adult. A lot of parents don't want to give you that at 22 and, and are hesitant to do it. And so I, I wrote about some of those struggles and how they manifest themselves. And you know, I, I, my friends who've gone through grief, that's just sort of one common thing is that you as a child have to try and work at a deeper level to understand where your parent, the remaining parent is coming from. And I think what was also difficult is it's no one has a sort of it, it, at least in my opinion, no one has the sort of hold to being able to have emotion all the time. And so sometimes you'll see like, oh, it's, you know, mom's having a difficult day. Well, what I, I want to have a tough day, right? <laughs> but you're not allowed to because mom is, or you're having a tough day that mom's not allowed to because you are, right? And that's a hard thing to navigate, especially in, in, in there's some families where that's really tough. Yeah. Really, really tough, which I've seen that firsthand with friends yeah. and difficult experiences. Competing needs. My husband and I call competing, that. Yeah, competing. Yeah, we call that yeah. we call that cranky pants. Like there's one pair of yeah. pants per family and we yeah. have, you know, two teenagers and one who's almost a teenager. And, the, you know, it's like the family dynamic, no matter how big or small it is, we can right. really only have one person who's needs are that high at a time. And, and honestly, I think that probably is partly what contributed when, I, when my mom died and I couldn't find a center, I, it was very difficult to have kids who needed me. It was very mm -hmm. difficult to have anyone need anything from me. And I think when in what I read in yours, it was almost, this isn't the right word, but I'm going to say it like a relief to rise to the occasion of, you know, being almost like a diplomat in those early days after your dad died. And then you describe the, the challenge of being offered and excelling at opportunities that look like a really great life, which is not the same necessarily as sort of maturing into the life that you would have naturally chosen for yourself, right? It's, yeah. it's different. It is. And I think one of the things you spoke about earlier in the interview is this idea of different physical feelings you might have. And I write about how the job gave me purpose and the job distracted me from the magnitude of grieving and actually having to sit in those thoughts and feelings. But the job also presented different things, especially pertaining to anxiety, yeah. which were magnified by being in a such a public facing position. So I write about in the book about how the anxiety would manifest itself, whether it be feeling so tense that you're going to fall over, whether the necktie is strangling you, whether you yeah. wake up with heart palpitations in the middle of the night thinking, oh gosh, I'm going to die. And there is a mental health aspect of that too, which yeah. feeds into sort of these two ideas. One is, well, 
no matter what I'm going to, you know, I'm going to die tomorrow anyway, because that's just what's going to happen. So the here and now doesn't matter. And then secondly, what I found, especially in terms of personal relationships was that that mentality of I've been through such a traumatic experience, even if you don't admit it, it shows itself by your, you don't have much patience. And what I mean by that is that I would (laughs) say, yeah, and and I'd go with this lovely woman and she would talk about sort of issues of her day. She's like, oh, I was stuck in traffic. And I'm like, you can't talk about traffic. I don't care. Right. And it's like, I really don't care. And it took me many years to realize that just because you go through a trauma, it doesn't give you an excuse just to completely wipe all that out because that's the, you know, the little things where they are with the human existence of is made up of, right? But if you're just immediately dismissive of it, you're not going to get anywhere and you're not going to understand people. But it's very hard. It's yeah. very hard. And I still fall back on that today. You know, one of the things I'll, I'll say is, oh, come on, life is so short. Why are you complaining about this? Why are you thinking about this? But then I also have to catch myself and be like, no, you know, sometimes people just need to vent or sometimes there actually is something that is, is problematic and it starts small and it, and it gets larger. But that's one of the things you have to guard against because that is a very powerful force. And I've seen it destroy people, whether it's you know, eating, drinking too much or never being able to sort of sit still in a relationship because there's this sort of fear of impending doom and, you know, being turned hedonistic in a way, whether it's not really applying all of oneself because of the concern of, eh, what's it all matter? And, and the, the tragedies and traumas that just bring out the sustained apathy, this very scary mm. stuff. And it's hard to, to, to see that it, it's unnerving. And a lot of times people put forward a face, which is, well, they must be okay because they're functioning at the high right. level. Right. Their sweater is buttoned. They right. must be Yeah. Fine. And it's, it's a very powerful, and especially men are, you know, men fall into this pattern a lot. And one of the things I, I call it the book is storing and ignoring. Yeah. And awesome. when you store and ignore, it's something that will bite you yeah. at some point. And yeah. one of the, the ways I explain that is, you can store something, put it away. It might come up in a year, two years time, and you might deal with it a little bit, but then you put it back away, right? And you ignore it, but it comes back, comes back, comes back. And it's not until you really go through all those things and you think about them and you process them and you try to understand them that there's any real semblance of peace. Uh-huh. I, I love what you just said. And what it's reminding me of is like hundreds of hours of conversation that I've had with people about how someone else has changed. Right. Their wife, their best friend, their boss, their brother has changed since their loss. And now I'm not saying that's never true, but more likely it's something in you has changed. And I think both things can happen, right? There's the like good element of that, which is it can help us narrow our focus on what really matters. And then there's that harder element of that, which is like, I don't really give a shit about what you're talking about. And I can't make myself care about what you're talking about. And if I can't care about what you're talking about, it's probably going to do a little bit of damage to our connection and our relationship. You are kind of at the mercy of it. And I say this as somebody who, you know, has 30 years of her own personal therapy under her belt. Like, these are not easy concepts. It's hard to do this. When you began to sort of 
pause and and step back and take a look at actually choosing what you wanted to do next, which really that really sends us into what I would say is the bulk of the book, which is this gorgeous exploration of yourself through travel. Can you just talk a little bit about how did you know to start moving and exploring? So I was turning 30. And for me at the time, I thought that was older. Really isn't. But you think it is. It sounds so gross. Yeah. And the light at the end of the tunnel becomes clear. And my father died at 58. I lost a friend at 27. So I kind of dealt with a lot of death. And I reached a point where I saw friends getting married, getting mortgages, some starting families where I knew that where I was within media, it didn't feel like I had summoned it. It felt like, all right, I had been among some very successful people. I could certainly see myself moving on this upward trajectory. There's, you know, so much opportunity ahead. But if I got to the mountaintop, if I got to the pinnacle, because I'm, I'm sniffy and I'm around these people who are very, very successful. The way I like to say it is like, all right. You know, I'm on the starting lineup. I'm in the nine. I'm not yeah. batting three or four right now, but I'm down in the six or seven hole. Yeah. Like there's a possibility of batting up higher. I knew that even if I got there, I'd be unfulfilled. And why did I know that? Because there were voices in my head that said, man, is this really what you want? And I was fortunate that House Speaker John Boehner, of all people, I think noticed this. I mean, I covered him really aggressively as a journalist. He saw me one day and he asked a very simple question on Capitol Hill, which he said, what are you doing here? Yeah. And here was, this is where you're supposed to be. This is the power center of the world of Washington. I'm on a first name basis with the United States. I have all these great opportunities. And he says like, no, no, no. He goes, this is cyclical. Time's a flat surface. You have 50, you could be here 50 years and not know what happened. And it haunted me when he said that because I realized, okay, these voices are in my mind about speaking something else, just having a reset are very powerful and they might be worth listening to. So I said, all right, I'll go travel just to get off the hamster wheel, remove myself from the world that I knew because I knew having that space would lead to something. And what I discovered in that moment was two things that were very fundamental. One, I was looking for something and that was essentially acceptance to be my own person and not be legacy management for my father or live in grief every single day. But then secondly, I was out running something and that was to actually deal and process with that grief. Absolutely. Because to do that would mean that he was actually gone and to do that would make me have to face some very difficult questions, things that I did not want to look into, which is who are you independent of, of this world of what you know? And what the travel did for me and where it was so valuable in the beginning and for the first, you know, for a year or two years, it allowed me to become comfortable in uncertainty. And when you could become comfortable in uncertainty, that helps out a lot with the grieving process. God, yeah. And the reason why is because you come to a point of, all right, no matter what is thrown at me, I am confident enough in my own ability to get through that I'll be okay. Mm. And it's not that you're tough. You know, people throw around that word tough all the time. It's called tough and you want to call it tough. It's not tough. To me, it's more you're comfortable enough in your own skin 
to know that at your worst moment, you're still going to pull through. And it takes a long time to get there. And it wasn't easy for me to get there. And it's not something that I think everyone experiences. I mean, a lot of people just sort of go through a tragedy and they learn to live with it. They never really process it. Yeah. But for me, it was a long, long journey, but I got to a place of peace. And part of that was spirituality and faith and thinking about the way the universe works and different you know, signs that show themselves. A lot of it was put yourself in the position of that person. And would they want you to live this life? So full of pain and anguish all the time. No, they wouldn't. They wouldn't. Of course. And you you know, it's so easy to say that. But once you kind of get to that moment where you really process that, it's a very powerful thing. Yeah. And it's funny because it's mentioned a lot in the beginning. People say, oh, you know, they would want you to live your best life. And you're like, yeah, I, I know, but they'd also want me to take care of mom. It also want me to do this and that. Well, fan. Right, right. Well, then, but, but there is a point where you go, man, we were so close. Like the last thing they would ever want is for yeah. you unhappy. That's right. And that's really something that people, I think they, they, don't grasp early on. I certainly didn't. And if I could go back in time, that is something which I would really like to hone in on and go yeah. back to 22-year-old Luke and be like, hey, think about this for a second yeah. and balance it. Balance it against what you think the expectations are and balance it against the reality and then yeah. balance it in terms of your own worldview. That's such a compassionate way, like a loving way to look back at a time when you're hurting and yeah. sort of, you know, offer some support. After my after my mom died, it was, six, you know, four or five months later, COVID began. So we had a lot of, you know, the lockdown experience. And I was getting better. I was working to get better. And then we had to sell her house, which is a terrible process to go through and also beautiful. And she had, you know, 30 years worth of stuff that we had to go through. It was a big piece of work. But afterwards, I couldn't imagine coming back to the house that I'm in right now. I'd gone through this big like purge of all the all the wrapping paper from my childhood, all my report cards. And I have five brothers and sisters, but no one could be there because it was during COVID. So I was really doing it just with my family. And all of a sudden, there was a little conversation of like, well, couldn't we travel? You know, the kids are going to be on Zoom for school. Like, what if we traveled? And sort of long story short, what my family ended up doing was traveling for five months. We rented a house in Montana, and then we went to Utah, and then we went to New Mexico. And what everyone said, and so I related when people were giving you positive feedback about your journalism career and your choices and where you could go, what everyone said to me was, you're such a great mom. Yeah. You know, you're doing this for your kids. What a great way to like embrace the, you know, COVID. And what I had to say, I said it every single time was this is me grieving. Mm -hmm. I can't go back. Mm -hmm. I can't. I don't know how to go back to my front porch and to my, you know, clinical work. I don't know where I'm going to go, but I know that what was what happened here was so significant that it like was like a like the glacier that you see, like a piece cracks off. Yeah. 
And what in your in your piece, of course, you need to go to these ancient temples and these places that your parents have been and the places that they haven't been. I mean, you go to Patagonia, you go to them like <laughs> places that are hard to get to. Yeah. And and you're not saying I'm explicitly searching for something there. But what you come to over and over again is a really powerful sense of something more than just you in the world. And you talk about you talk about being raised Catholic, you talk about your faith, but I'm it's so present in the travels, your experience of sort of understanding all the different countries and their various experiences with their religions and how I mean, you have one chapter where you're sort of like, oh, it's all kind of the same. Which is just a beautiful. So I'm just wondering, like, can you talk a little bit about what what you were looking for while you were traveling? So one of the phrases that I like is that, especially as it pertains to religion, we're all going to the same place. We just take different roads to get there. And then, of course, is well, what is that place? And it really is a place of peace and understanding, because much of the reasons why religions exist, it's to sort of promote a set of values. But it's also give a sense of purpose in what comes next in the afterlife or once you're dead, where, where do you go? What happens to your soul? And for me, I thought it was so fascinating to see all these different takes on that. But ultimately, the people who were the most faithful or the most comfortable or however you want to describe it, were the people who were at a place of peace. And I write about in the book few moments that were deeply impactful is one actually witnessed a cremation at Mm -hmm. a a Hindu temple in Nepal. And at the time I didn't really, it wasn't affecting me the way it should. And that's when I knew that I was a little off, but I had grown sort of hard inside and it was, was in this place of, okay, why am I not understanding that at the deepest level that I could? And that's because I had sort of seen it in this literal, oh my gosh, here's this corpse burning. Yeah. And I wasn't I wasn't processing the spirituality behind that. How the idea is like, okay, from you know, we'd say in the Catholic faith, from dust thou art to dust thou shall return. Yeah. So here is the actual spiritual transformation I was looking at it in such a literal way. Yeah. Right. And that sort of was interestingly enough for me a catalyst of okay, you have to think deeper. And I had been doing that by learning about different faiths, especially Buddhism in Cambodia also comes up because yeah. it's those stories and the idea of embracing the suffering yeah. and I'm able to sort of understand the notion of, okay, there is an element here of where nothing might ever be certain, yet yeah. you might have to live in this uncertainty and that might be difficult, but that's okay because you can find comfort there. So those are two moments where one's Buddhist, one's Hindu, very different from how I grew up. But I see within that this deeply important through line, and that is understanding that we are here, you're here for a short time. That time might not all be good. There might be a lot of difficulty within that time, but make the most of it because eventually you go back to that dust and it'll come at some moment. And what was so, 
I think rewarding about that is it sounds so cliche, sort of life is short, make the most of it. You don't know how many more days you have, anything could happen, et cetera. We hear that a lot. Yeah, we sure do. (laughs) But when you see much more simplistic ways of understanding that, which is through meditative prayer, the Muslim sense, through this cremation and sort of cleansing in the Hindu sense, it made it more real to me and it made it easier to understand. And then once I took that through the sort of, I realized that that appears in other religions too. So, you know, in Catholicism, especially like that's the thousand year script, the funeral services, et cetera. And I think there's a lot of comfort there if you're willing to to experience it and willing to look for it. Yeah. Everybody is, not everybody should. Yeah. But there's a reason why they're set up and that's sort of, the main gist of it is to get you comfortable for those those end days or to understand those tragedies that happen. Well, I think there is an an intuitive draw that that you talk about. I mean, I think it's right after your dad dies and you and your mom spend some time together and you've been in that at the Vatican, right? Like days right. before together, but you guys pray and you put that in the book that that's one of your first instincts is, is to be together and pray. And what I appreciated about that, because I was also raised Catholic, is that that ritual is almost like what the tradition has handed down, that in a hard moment, you have this, that you have something to to go to. And then I think people instinctively, if it works for you, you keep going there, right? Like, so I talk to people all the time about how, what relieves your grief? What helps you get deeper into grief? What helps process the energy through? And one of the ones that's difficult to have people talk about is this concept of spirituality, which I say is the the allowance of, you know, you feeling small in the presence of something big. So for me, the deepest moment of the spirituality was being in the Badlands and there was this electrical storm at a distance that came towards us. And I couldn't, I mean, even though it was maybe not a hundred percent safe to have my kids <laughs> out in the badlands during a thunder right. and lightning storm, it was so overwhelmingly comforting to feel like God dinosaurs walked here and yeah. the, and there's energy coming from the sky. And my pain is very small in comparison not in a minimizing way, but in a relieving way. And I think, I don't know, for me, that's sort of what's at the root of all spirituality is wanting to be held in that place. Like this is part of the human experience. You're connected to all humans who have had this experience. One thing that I love that you write about is the, the, the your experience with rainbows. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I just, again, I feel like it's something that people sometimes talk to each other about, but I don't know that I've read about it in a lot of the memoirs and texts that I've read. So I want to talk about something you just said, because it's sort of the way my dad used to process death and trauma, which is this idea of we're all part of a grand design. It's part of life, right? And I think I started to see that and I appreciate that, especially through that cremation, through embracing suffering and understanding that. And there's a real power to that. And you get that amongst nature too, because you see the cycle of nature and how there's such beauty, but such pain, which goes back to Bambi, the Lion King, right? 100%. So didn't see as a young child. They lost their parents. Yeah, Yeah. and you learn it at a young age, right? There's the relationship and the pain in there. The rainbow, on a literal level, when my father, he had a public service for him at the Kennedy Center, 
and I spoke at it. It was about four or five days after he passed. And one of his favorite songs was Somewhere Over the Rainbow. And we played that song as people processed out of the auditorium. And just as that happened, a friend of mine goes, you got to go out on the porch and look outside. And there's this beautiful rainbow over Washington with that song player. And so I would always sort of look to rainbows as dad saying hi and whatnot. And when I traveled and I would you know, go through some difficult experiences, but lo and behold, there'd be a rainbow there. And it would come on certain days at certain moments where there's the anniversary of his passing in Iceland. I saw a rainbow. One time in New Zealand, I was going through a difficult day. Um, there'd be a rainbow. And what that taught me was there is something very valuable about looking for the signs, but also talking to the person who you lost. That's and right. when my dad first passed away, Tom Brokaw said to me, he said, you know, your dad is there. You just have to communicate, say hello, talk. And I met so many people that would say something like that. Like, you know, I talk to my parents now more than I did when I was a yeah, kid. Yeah. Right? And I didn't really understand what that meant. I thought it was kind of weird. Like, do I just like sit in a dark closet and like yeah, talk into the, uh, you know, into the ceiling? Like, I don't know. What, what do you mean by that? And what I learned by traveling, by seeing the rainbows and allowing myself the space and time, this only came because of space and time. If I was in the hamster wheel 100%. of trying to make a media career, it never would have happened because I That's never right. would have given credence to it. I never would have believed in it. I never would have thought enough about it. And in the space and time, you start to think, oh, okay, what would they say to me right now? What would you know, their end of the conversation be? And there's such comfort in that because they're with you. You walk with them. And... I think getting to that place is incredible yeah. if you're able to do it, but society doesn't let you get there very easily. Agree. Because there's an element of, oh, you're crazy, you're talking to yourself, or, oh, you know, you believe in this crazy, you know, faith and spirituality, it's all a bunch of cuckoo, you know, go get your tarot cards read, et cetera, right? And okay, sure, but I go back to that cremation because that is, let's strip away all spirituality of that, right? You're literally going back into the dust and being thrown down the river, right? So that is, would start off with being the tadpole to right. all the humanity. Like this was a sort of way it, it all comes back into one. That's the eternal truth. And it's sort of how you deal with it. Right. right? That's the quantum but, physics But it's of it. there, but it's yeah, there and that's, that's right. it. And so you don't have to be spiritual at all, but at the end of the day, you're going back into the earth or if you're cremated, your ashes are going into the river or they're going back into the air or whatever. They're going back into some living thing, right? So once you kind of like understand that and you realize, oh yeah, this living thing, everyone's around or omnipresent. It's, it's very comforting. It's very comforting. I love, I love how you highlighted that that takes like emotional space. You know, not everybody can do what you and I did because it takes resources and it takes flexibility to take a bunch of time and, you know, to give yourself that time. I think 
regular meditation probably gives you a moment of that time or some moments of that time. But but what you're talking about is the availability of it and and maybe also the normalcy of it, right? Because you travel all over the world and ha- whatever it is that people are calling, whatever they're calling their God or their tradition, pretty universally humans have this connection to the idea that there is something that is available to offer them solace and support that is bigger than just their one life on this planet. I think one of the things that I've said is doesn't matter regarding resources because nature is the ultimate resource. And one thing that anybody can do is put your phone down and go spend three hours in the woods just staring at a tree. I don't care what it is, just walking. But it has to be disconnected. It ha- and, and it can't be with somebody else. It has to be on your own in living with those voices in your head and listening to them, not without distraction. Because we're kind of conditioned to find the distraction. Distraction makes things easier. There's a reason why people procrastinate, right? The procrastination is actually easier than doing the, the, the task itself. And our brains are often hardwired to be protective. Right. And well, if you're busy or you're worrying about something, you're not you know, dealing with the thing that is causing you the most angst and anguish. I'm protecting you bringing, I'm protecting you from the harder thing. Right. And it's only, I believe with disconnected, really deep, powerful moments of aloneness and solitude, can you turn off the brain? that's trying to protect you and tune into the brain that is trying to be honest. And that is something which can happen anywhere, but nature really is an accelerant. And I, I can't recommend it enough, but this, this, whatever you have to do just to get away for a moment, it's possible no matter where you are. It is. And one of the stories I've, I like to tell is I did this internship and I I grew up in DC and there's a lot of nature in DC, but I I was never really aware of power of it. I did this internship when I was 21 in New York city and it was in the summer and, and I spent literally like seven weeks, not really leaving midtown Manhattan, like there for seven straight weeks in the summer, like you know, the, the weekend there. The, yeah. So it's just like you're in the city, it's concrete, it's sweat, it's action packed, nothing is, you know, the, the world yeah. is moving and moving and moving and moving. And a kid who I befriended that summer who was actually from there was like, okay, it's been about seven weeks. So yeah, I get out. I like, what are you talking about? It's just trust me. And we took a train ride yeah. out to some random Connecticut town. Sure. And there was a, a path, a hiking path near the train station. And we just walked out on it. And I'll always remember the feeling of after seven weeks in Midtown Manhattan nonstop, taking this train out to some random Connecticut town and walking on this path. And it was just like, just instantly the mind shifted where levels of, you know, simulation levels came down. You were able to breathe. Things became more clear. And I was so much better off for it. And this came from a kid who had grown up in the city and understood what that hyper-connectedness could do. And this was before smartphones were so prevalent, right? This is in 2007. So I would argue that in our current day and age, the smartphone is living in Manhattan, Midtown Manhattan for seven years. Totally. We're all in Midtown Manhattan. Yeah, we're all in Manhattan now. So you got to get away and process it. Yeah, that's such a, yeah, that's so powerful. And I think hopeful because- 
you know, I, I think people need to believe that they can sort of adopt these practices mm -hmm. in order to mm -hmm. let themselves be with their feelings or let their feelings tell them what they haven't. It's too crowded in there. It's too loud. I know that because we're just about to hit June, that this these next couple of weeks that we're headed towards Father's Day and I believe it's your dad's death anniversary. Do you have a routine? Do you have something that you do? for these days that are upcoming or do they pass through without much? Do oh, they no, they're hard. I, I yeah. And they're always hard. It gets better with time. I, so it starts out for me as sort of a big three, which is that my father's birthday is May 7th. So that's usually about six weeks before Father's Day. I really like to celebrate the birthdays. The birthdays are happy days because you think about yeah. the moments growing up, birthdays are, are, are happy. And so that's, so that's always a sort of celebratory happy day for me. Yeah. The date of the death anniversary, it's very hard in the beginning because you start to think about how much time has gone by, especially year one and year two, you, yeah, everything comes flooding real. back. You remember what exactly you were doing in that moment. And it's almost like reliving it. Yeah. I have sort of grown more comfortable on the day of death anniversary. It's some, I certainly feel it. But over the course of time, you know, some days I worked just sort of full shifts and didn't process as much. Other days I would take a moment. I would always try to go to a baseball game if there was one in D.C. or Baltimore. Something like that just sort of brought me joy. Yeah, yeah just do something that brought me joy. And then I think the hardest one for me is certainly Father's Day. And yeah. that's because so much of what my father had done in his own life was about his relationship with me and his relationship with his own dad and talking about fathers and sons. He wrote yeah. two books about it. And that's one where I sort of tried to come up with different ways. It's a few years I've gone and hung out with my, my friends who have kids and, you know, go be uncle Luke and, and play yeah. with them. And that brings me joy. Other times I'll do the baseball game. Other days I just sort of disconnect and just, you know, off on my own and I will, yeah. I try to avoid it. And yes. there's nothing, there's no right answer. I think, especially in social media, like, yeah, I don't know if I want to look at a bunch of Instagram posts <laughs> with people, you know, no. all happy with their death. But every now and then you have one in there just like, hey, it's my dad, right? So you, you realize there's a bunch of us out there. But it's, it's, there's, again, there's no real discernible right way. Yeah, right? that's right. That's what people have to understand. Like, so long as you're not hurting yourself or hurting others, you're doing fine. Yeah. And you'll get there, you know, but it's, it's just, just brace yourself, that's brace right. yourself for those anniversaries. And they're, they're never easy and try to make, find one that's happy in, in those days. You know, I often tell people like, you know, do whatever it is that you need to do to get through the day is sort of mm -hmm. the simplest answer. Cause then you won't have to do this one again. You know, this will be over. Yeah. And Sometimes we think we've nailed it, right? We had a good day, you know, it's a good Father's Day and we've nailed it. And then two years later, you know, it yeah. takes note at the knees. Like there is no, there is no standard answer because grief is sort of like bubbles or waves that, yeah. you know, they just, they come and they move through. But one thing, Rabbi Steve Leader, who is this lovely guy in California, and he talks about what you were talking about, which is how do you, how do you maintain a relationship with your person mm. and that you felt it, it was encouraging when people were like, when Tom Brokaw tells you, you know, your dad is still here. I found it 
totally infuriating when people said that to me, like, you're saying that to make yourself feel better. I don't feel better. My mom and dad have died. But I, you know, I'm seven years into my dad. I'm four years into my mom. And I can feel it a little bit. And what Rabbi Steve Leader says is, what if you just looked at the world with their eyes? Like, enjoy the things that they enjoyed. And I find that simpler. Like, my mom loved birds. You know, I noticed birds. But my mom loved birds. She grew up in the city. Yeah. She was obsessed with birds. So it is actually easy for me to sit on my porch and look at birds with the idea of I am showing this to my mom. And it's a way, it's like a way of being with her in that moment. Like, look, mom, look at these cardinals. And that there's a there's a whole grief theory about that, which is called continuing bonds. But I think it is actually something that is a task of grief. Like in order to know that you are integrating this loss so that it isn't only the worst thing that ever happened is being able to say, I got through that day. And also I was thinking about dad, not just thinking about him, but I was thinking with his thoughts. He he loved baseball. He yeah. would have loved to have known that yeah. I went to a baseball game. And I think you do a really nice job of talking about those things. I really want to encourage people to get your book. It's so beautiful. You destroy me at the end with your life. <laughs> dad. You. I didn't see that coming. I was well, like, how's he going to wrap this up? Like how, what yeah. wisdom is he going to give us? And I'm not really spoiling anything for readers, but you write this just unbelievably beautiful letter to your dad at the end. You don't give us any answers. You just show us and, and allow us to feel alongside you what it is like to live after loss and what those tasks might mean and what that job might look like. And I am really appreciative, and I really say this with such genuine like clinical affection, we don't have enough voices for men who are telling us the truth of what this process can feel like and what it can look like and, and what it means when someone is functioning really well is not maybe what it means when someone looks like they're functioning really well. So I'm so grateful for this hour. I, you know, I have 11 other questions that I would have yeah. asked, you, but I want to be respectful of our time because I know you're so busy. I'm going to tell the readers, they always know this. I have 10 copies of your book. If they want to email me, I will send them a copy. My sister. Well, oh, it's so nice of you. We love to do that. Yeah. Make sure that people get copies who otherwise maybe would have to wait on a long list at the library for it. And I just wish you really well. I'm, you know, I'm paying attention to all the places. You were at my publisher's bookstore the other day, Zibby Books, signing, signing books. And so I'm just watching you on social media. And I'm just really grateful for your voice and your story and sharing your relationship with your dad, but also just your, your experience in life, being you. And Well, thank you so much, Ray. I appreciate that. And what you just touched on regarding men, it is hard. And I think we're, we made a lot of progress on that front in the last few years, but there's still a long way to go. And that will be something which, you know, I will try to lend my voice to as much as possible because there is a better way than storing and ignoring. Doesn't work for everybody, but there at least should be more of a conversation of, okay, how do we get men, especially to open up some more layers? 
in ways of which they see the value, but it's That's not nice. someone trying to infringe on their right to be themselves. Mm. I still think we, especially in America, there's this sort of frontiersman mentality, <laughs> right? As you rugged and in yes. the sick and yes. take care of yourself, don't burden other people with your problems. And you're not burdening others with your problems. You just, you know, you can take a, take off a little bit of the load. Just leave it by the side of the road <laughs> to hand it off. That's right. It's and it's, yeah. a, it's a different kind of frontiersman. Right. You know, you're really cutting through the the heavy greenery of past ideas that there isn't room for people to be able to grieve out in the world and. You know, honestly, the fact that our Western culture is not that well grief informed is that's something that your book, I think, is helping to change that anyone who is willing to have a conversation. And I think most memoirs are grief stories, but I think anyone who's willing to have a conversation out loud is showing somebody else how it could be done or the possibility that exists that they probably don't otherwise see. So I really can't emphasize enough. Like it's such a gift to people who are going to read it. And I am just really, really grateful. It's beautiful work. And whatever you're moving on to and doing next after this, we will watch and and be cheering you on the sidelines. Well, thank you so much. Great. I appreciate it. Take care. Thank you, Luke. Have Take care. One. Happy. And thank happy you for getting Patrick's 10 day. copies. That's very nice of you. <laughs> 10 we always winners. do. Take care. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye.